0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Luke Stark. Luke is an assistant professor at Western University in London, Ontario. Luke, welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on the show. You are a ethics and AI researcher, among other things, and you've been a vocal critic of computer vision and facial recognition in particular, and I'm looking forward to digging into those topics with you. But before we do, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field.
1: Sure thing. It was a kind of a an unexpected winding road here. So I'm a historian by training, by academic training, and I was not a big computer kid. I liked science fiction a lot, but I was mostly reading books. I wasn't doing too much coding or, or too much electronical engineering. I ended up doing my, my PhD in media studies because I, I kind of got sick of the fact that historians sort of by convention often kind of stop their, stop their work about 20 to 30 years prior to the present. Well, that's changing a little bit, but that was that's kind of the tradition. And so I did a, a PhD in media studies at NYU and ended up, ended up working with a philosopher of technology there named Helen Nissenbaum, who was at the time thinking about digital privacy. And she just came out with a book about privacy in context, the idea that privacy is one of these things that isn't just about control of your data, but it's about kind of socially appropriate or socially contextual data transfers and data flows. And this was about 2010. And as it turned out, Helen had been thinking about not just privacy, but other human values in computing systems since the mid nineties. And she was kind of part of a, you know, a fairly small niche bunch of folks who were in law schools, in information schools, in media studies departments, who had been, had been thinking about these questions. Mm -hmm. And, and that's how I got along, I worked with her, did a bunch of work with her. About 2016, 2017, all of a sudden, right, there was this huge upsurge in interest in machine learning, right, and also a huge interest in the social impacts of machine learning and ethical AI. And all of a sudden, it it felt like all the things we had been talking about in this fairly kind of constrained corners of academia were things that you know, governments were interested in, companies are interested in, the general public is interested in, and so that's been sort of where my work has been ever since. I was sort of just lucky to be in in on the ground floor, as they say.
0: Nice, nice. So I mentioned that you have been critical of facial recognition. That seems like a a good place to start. One of your articles from a couple of years ago described facial recognition as the plutonium of AI, and in the in the introduction to that piece, you kind of acknowledge that it comes off to some as alarmists, uh, but then you proceed to back it up, the The analogy. Tell us about that. Wh- why that analogy? And more importantly, why do you think that facial recognition is so dangerous? Sure. So that piece was inspired by
1: some earlier work I had been doing with a, a wonderful friend and colleague, uh, Anna Lauren Hoffman, at the University of Washington, on thinking about metaphors in first big data and then eventually AI, and how often these natural metaphors get used, right? We talk about data mining, data lakes, you know, people mm-hmm. call data the new bacon. I mean, it, it was kind of a bit-, a bit The new bit oil. Kooky. The new oil, exactly. I mm-hmm. prefer the bacon. <laughs> and so I was thinking a lot about data metaphors and I was thinking, okay, so so you can use metaphors in a way to make a product seem or make data seem appealing, but can thinking about these metaphors do something else? Can it kind of orient people towards you know, some of, some of the challenges and maybe problems with different kinds of AI technology? And the reason I came to Plutonium was because I was reading a lot of, and I was really inspired by work in race and technology studies, right? Work by amazing scholars who have been thinking about the impacts of digital technologies on race and racism, on racial categorization, and how the internet has shaped, you know, has reshaped those conversations over the last 20 years. People like Lisa Nakamura, Simone Brown, Wendy Chun, you know, really, really amazing scholars. And I, I want to say, I mean, I think my work is absolutely indebted to and builds on this really pathbreaking work of these other people, many of whom are, are women of color, right, especially Black women. And what they've been arguing for a long time, for decades, right, is that the you know the way that digital technologies kind of encourage categorization right either new categorizations of people or they kind of build in old suspect problematic you know racist categorizations that that, that has a kind of toxicity because these technologies are are now so ubiquitous right they're in our pockets they're they're making decisions about hiring and bail and, and and all these important things in our lives and so i take that that evidence you know historical evidence empirical evidence from sociologists really seriously and i think the analogy of, of plutonium as being physically toxic is to facial recognition as, as socially toxic, right? You know, at the time that I wrote the piece, I guess that was twenty early 2019, late 2018. The conversation around facial recognition was very different than it is today. Mm -hmm. That ground has shifted a lot. In 2018, there were a few people in media studies sort of saying, this is a really challenging, problematic technology. Woody Herzog and Evan Selinger, two legal scholars, wrote a piece about the kind of democratic danger, the danger to democracy of facial recognition. And then I wrote this piece and other people had also written other pieces. But I think in the last two to three years, uh, more and more jurisdictions, right, especially municipalities in the states and elsewhere, have really come to say we you know we don't want this kind of this kind of surveillance being used by government. We you know there's often mandates to that police don't use it for obvious reasons, right? Because it is so tied up in this history of unjust policing of of minorities, especially you know Black Americans. And so I think that social toxicity of facial recognition has become more people have become, become more more aware of it. Right? They see mm-hmm. it in more parts of their of their everyday lives. you know there are stories about how it screws up, right how it doesn't do a good job of capturing certain kinds of faces and how it can be used to you know repress dissent and so I think all of those things have meant that social toxicity is increasingly clear
0: mhm mm-hmm. uh, one of the distinctions that you make in the the piece in your work generally is that the your critique is is not so much that. You know it's used improperly. like we've seen examples of local policing organizations use facial recognition improperly, and you know they could have used it better, perhaps. It's not necessarily that it's used in the wrong domains, but rather, your take is that it's it's fundamentally dangerous and so dangerous that it shouldn't be used or should only be used in very very specific, highly regulated situations, analogous to plutonium. Can you elaborate on, on where that contention comes from? Yeah, sure. And I have this kind of folksy analogy. I've become analogies, I guess,
1: <laughs> of thinking about a rotten onion. So take a take a rotten onion, right? Mm-hmm. You got the onion, you know, it's got these layers. And let's say, you, you know, you, you take the skin off the onion and the first layer of the skin is, of the onion is rotten. That's kind of analogous to the kind of concerns about use and deployment official recognition, right? So, okay, so, right, we have all these problems with it being, being used by the wrong people and the wrong hands for the wrong. So let's say you say, okay, well, I accept those problems. I accept those critiques, right? I'll peel that first rotten layer of the onion off, right? Hopefully maybe the next layer down will be better. Then the second layer of the onion, are the the kind of concerns about technical bias that, that have been now widely art- articulated about facial recognition, right? So Joe Bollamwini and Tim Jebru's work on gender shades, right, makes the point that a lot of computer vision data sets and facial recognition data sets are not trained on a diverse set of faces. So they're picking up, especially dark-skinned women, much less precisely than they are picking up white men, right? And there have been lots mm-hmm. of studies, this is, and this is a big critique, not just recognition, but things like analysis, right? Great scholar Lauren Rue, University of Maryland, has talked about this in the context of emotion recognition. That emotion recognition systems recognize white smiles better than they recognize black smiles, right? So similar, mm. similar thing. So that's a much harder problem to solve, right? Because of the challenges of getting contextually appropriate data, the challenges of having diverse data sets, the challenges around privacy, right? You know, so there's a whole bunch of technical problems. But let's hypothetically say, and I I don't actually think you could fix this, but let's hypothetically say you could fix it. Let's hypothetically say you could peel that second layer of the onion off that rotten onion. Okay. So now you've got like the third, like the core of the onion, right? And to me, this layer of the onion is also rotten in the context of facial recognition because conceptually, facial recognition systems, right, even though they're not making any, you know, the people are are making the judgments about what the technology is doing, but the system itself is designed to put numbers to faces, right, quantify the face and put that face that's quantified in conversation with other faces, right? So even if you are doing simple, straightforward identification, right, you know, you're still identifying the fact that there's, there's a face pattern there in the first place, right? And when you start putting that into like databases and you start looking at how much that kind of that kind of comparison of of facial vectors, I guess you could say, happens. That kind of quantification of the face, even if it's not intended to be, is really a big chunk of the textbook definition of racism, right? Racism is about, you know, using kind of external physical quantification, physical physical features, and making judgments about an individual based on those features, right? And so, in my view, almost every kind of, kind of facial recognition technology in some way participates in that, in that kind of quantifiable judgment. And that's why I think that third part of the onion is rotten. And I think, right, if you get rid of that third part of the onion, you have no onion left. There's no point in investing in a rotten onion if at every layer, at every level, there are these insurmountable problems.
0: Mm -hmm. And so that third part of the onion, the argument there is that kind of digitizing faces and just any kind of. Judgment or analysis or decision making based on the digital model of faces is is what is flawed. Is, is the the first argument? Yeah, the argument
1: is that any kind of digital model of really, it's not just the face; it's the human body, more generally. Right, is open to exploitability as, as a kind of around racism. The textbook definition of racism, right, is using exterior physiological traits, physical traits, to make judgments about the inner self. And so all of these systems are doing that first part of that definition. They're all mapping. They're dependent on the kind of quantified mapping of, extra, of physiological traits, the face of the body of, of whatever. Unless you're not doing anything with that mapping, unless it's purely a descriptive matching mapping, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not, I don't think really how, you know, that's not very useful in a lot of the ways these, these, these systems get deployed. Then the system, you know, is being asked by its designers, designed by its designers to make judgments about the faces, the bodies, the digital profiles it's taken in and potentially to, to make, put them into a hierarchy, right? Potentially to classify them, potentially in the case of facial analysis, right? To say, you know, to make a prediction about, about age or about gender or about whatever. And you have there both the kind of textbook definitions of, of racism. It's quantified external features. Uh, you know, being judged in some way, put into kind of hierarchies, whether deliberately or not. Right. One thing important to say here is I don't think many technologists and designers think they're being racist. Right. They they're sure. not. They don't necessarily have racial animus. But one of the things I take from the work of somebody like Wendy Chun, who I mentioned, right, this amazing theorist of race and technology, is that racism itself, race as a concept, is a kind of technology. Right. It's kind of a technique that the powerful have always used in lots of different contexts of course in the american context very specifically often around black americans but racism more broadly right between to non white people a classificatory technique race as a concept puts people into particular orders right it it works a bit like you know conceptually what facial recognition systems any kind of recognition system that is that is mapping the body and and mapping many bodies and putting them into kind of into these databases is d- doing in a dumb way Right, doing in a way that that is just that's what it's meant to do. So it's and I think it's important to think about that kind of systemic definition of race and racism, right? That idea of of race as a technique, because you can be using that technique and not be realizing it threaded through the kind of classification systems that you're that you're working with.
0: Mm -hmm. You seem to be suggesting that the third core layer of the onion is problematic because it's maybe put another way that. All facial recognition is fundamentally racist.
1: Yeah, basically, if you want to boil it
0: down. Uh, Yeah, just trying to get to like, so does that extend to like face unlock for your phone? Is that fundamentally racist? I think it is because
1: just by the act of deciding to put numbers to your face, right? Apple is, or whoever's using face unlock, not to pick on Apple, these facial unlock systems... Are making a kind of judgment about what a face is, right? They're saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm looking for a particular pattern of light and dark of like of, of whatever, and I'm going to define that pattern as a face, and that's the edge case, right? The edge case that that kind of simple one-to-one recognition is like the probably the the argument that that's racist is intrinsic to the the quantification aspect. It's not because it's it's one-to-one. You're not necessarily putting it in conversation with other faces, right? we talk about the, you know, we talk about this in this paper, Physiognomic AI, that I've written with a great legal scholar, Jemin Hudson. We talk about that as the edge case. We say there are some, some good kind of philosophical reasons why even just the identification of the face with numbers kind of suggests, right, it, it kind of pushes you towards this kind of racializing classification scheme. And certainly when you put multiple faces together, then that, that kind of produces this problem.
0: And what is it about the numbers that inherently gives rise to racism, what about other types of judgment based on faces? Like, we go through life all day making judgment based on faces. Does that mean that human existence is fundamentally racist? No, I
1: think human existence is fundamentally based on these kind of inferences about people, these conjectures about people. This is a great question, right? Right. This is actually often a response that you get when you talk about these, these problems. Okay. You say, okay, yeah, people do this all the time. People are always making judgments about people based on, on what they look like and their face. And there are two, a couple of things to say about that. First, right, there, there are sort of right these two battling folk sayings, right? You know, you can't judge a book by its cover versus, you know, mm-hmm. you, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. There's this kind of opinion is divided, right, about just how useful these individual inferences about people are, right? And there's been lots of work in psychology that talks about how much stereotype and other kind of incorrect inference permeates what we're doing a lot of the time in, in our daily lives. We're much better at making inferences about people if we know them well, right? So I, I know I can kind of infer things about my, my mother, what she's thinking or what, how she's feeling that I wouldn't be able to infer from a total stranger. And the real problem, right, then because, so, there are, so there are all these problems with this kind of individual personal level inference. Lots of books have been written about it. Right. Lots of songs have been written about, et cetera. Okay, But when you try to scale that, right, when you try to say, okay, we're we're going to make a science out of this, we're going to find kind of regular and repeatable patterns in these in faces. We're going to infer from one particular person's whatever, you know, some some set of things about them with some degree of accuracy. Right. That's when it all breaks down. Right, because it's too brittle. You're never going to be able to capture the the kind of the, the potentially the reason why that inference works. And that inference, even if it's seventy percent, you know, accurate at a population level, is also never going to be reapplicable down to the individual level. Right? This is called it's called the ecological fallacy in statistics. Right. It's so it's fine. You know, if you right, so you can do these kind of population level analyses.
0: Just to to be clear, so you're shifting focus in the conversation to the paper you did, which is the physiognomic AI. And that is broadly a critique of, you know, these kinds of studies that will try to look at faces and determine, you know, any number of things. What are some examples of like the most egregious things you've seen? Sure. Well, race is one of them Mm -hmm. in terms of my own
1: trajectory, right? So thinking about race and racial race and facial recognition, right? Well, it's not just race or ethnicity that these systems purport to predict, claim to be able to predict. They claim to be able to do things like predict your gender, your age, Mm -hmm. your emotion, your sexual orientation, your political Mm -hmm. leanings, right? There's a whole, there's been a whole raft of dubious machine learning, you know, kind of prediction studies. And, you know, I think race is a really critical example here mm-hmm. it's exactly what what we're talking about but at a bigger you know the physiognomic ai and the problem is that at a scale that's not just about race right it's looking at these various identity categories and trying to make assumptions about that identity category in ways that at that macro level at that level of populations that then gets translated back down to the individual can often be wrong right it yeah. can can be inaccurate and if it and whether or not it is accurate or not it can you know if it's used in various ways it's hugely damaging
0: Mm -hmm. yeah my my general sense is that most of the technologists i interact with look at these studies you know very critically to say the least and wonder how they get published Uh, but of course people write them and publish them
1: yeah you know and, and i think there's a there's a whole conversation to have about basic machine learning research and applied machine learning research, and how even when researchers don't quite realize it, the line between them is very, very narrow, right? Mm -hmm. I was a postdoctoral researcher at Microsoft Research in their fairness group for two years. And I mean, I I really saw this firsthand, right? A lot of researchers, you know, have good intentions, they actually really want tools and scaffolding to to do a good job and to not, Mm -hmm. not, you know, trace into these problematic deployments. And so there is a kind of a set of structural questions around research, but it's just, right, it's so easy to productize this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking especially of these various smartphone filters and apps, right, where they say, oh, we'll we'll turn your face into an 80-year-old man's face or Mm-hmm. will morph it so that you look stereotypically female or something, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's really easy to do. But I think it's also another example of how ubiquitous, like this kind of this digitizing of this categorizing of features is becoming because of facial recognition. And I, and I think, you know, th- those filters, okay, maybe they're in good fun, except for the, you know, when you have a filter that says make beautifying filter and that beautifying filter, the actual visual effect is to lighten your skin right? Mm-hmm. Or to change the shape of your face. That's a huge problem. And I agree. I mean, there are, there is a lot of good internally critical work in machine learning and in the tech sector. And I think increasingly large amounts of it. I gave, I was asked to give a, give a talk about this stuff at, at CDPR earlier this year. And, and there was a lot of interest and, and a lot of thoughtful conversation about it. I think that there is a, a real anxiety on the part of a lot of researchers about censorship, right? And about sort of being told what to research and what not to research. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, that anxiety is understandable, but I think if we all stop to think for a, a little bit, there are lots of boundaries on on what kinds of research we do, right? And there are lots of kind of ethical rules and guidelines in, in, in every academic discipline. Nobody's just kind of just out there kind of plowing over every social constraint. And so I think because there's been this body of work that thinks seriously about things like classification, I think it's time and I think it is, I think it's good that it's it's now being thought about in computer vision.
0: hmm hmm Yeah, we've talked quite a bit about kind of the, I don't know if you call it changing perceptions, but kind of the broader context in which we're evaluating facial recognition. We've alluded to some of the shifts that have happened in the acceptability of using facial recognition in policing. How would you characterize, I guess, the regulatory landscape or the, the legal landscape? I know that's a topic that you're interested in. And of course, it's, you know, There's many, many municipalities. It's hard to do broadly, but what do you think are the kind of the major landmarks recently?
1: Yeah, so municipal bans or moratoria on on facial recognition have been a big kind of part of the regulatory landscape for the last couple of years in the U.S. Uh, Cities like, I believe, like Oakland, like Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then also, you know, new focus on laws that protect broadly things like biometric privacy, right? The Illinois Biometric Privacy Law is just one of the strongest in the States. And it has been like very, very heavily attacked by various big tech firms because it it stops various kinds of, of filters, you know, various kinds of facial tech from being deployed or used in Illinois. So I think that's been notable. I think that there has, of course, been in the, the American context, a, a lot of conversation in Congress about tech regulation broadly. Unclear if we'll actually see any legislation. But what has been notable is the... Kind of recent set of hirings at the FTC, right, the Federal Trade Commission, which has sort of become the kind of de facto tech regulator. It it has been for a long time around privacy because of its mandate to deal with to unfair or deceptive business practices, of of which there there have been sort of many many in the context of of kind of privacy breaches and and dark patterns and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think that the FTC is really gearing up to think about. All these questions kind of holistically not just privacy but also and this is something we argue and we argue for in this recent paper but for understanding things like biometric classification and physiognomic classification as potentially being per se unfair and deceptive precisely because right you're doing a kind of a classification on on an individual right that is making assumptions about the individual right that may not be accurate no classifier is 100 accurate And so that may be both unfair and deceptive, right? Depending on...
0: Yeah, yeah. When you looked at the physiognomic AI landscape, what did you find was the... kind of the motivator behind that work? Was it, you know, people with the data set and just playing around? Was it, again... You know, we look at these and like, you know, you see them pop up on Twitter every few months and it's like, okay, you know, once again, correlation, not equal causation, blah, blah, blah. And I'm curious, you know, where they come from in terms of thinking.
1: Yeah, I think, and I think there's a kind of complex, like overlapping set of motivations, right? I think the world of academic prestige and reputation and controversy and and PR does a lot in fueling some of this work right Mm -hmm. i think if you publish this study that makes this kind of big claim about being able to tell you know tell somebody's sexual orientation via data set or uh, by by facial recognition or political orientation right you're going to get written up in all the tech press right it's part of the kind of ecosystem of content and and, and clickable headlines and everything in it So sometimes there's more serious work or more interesting work that gets written up in a sensational way. And then there's, sometimes there's work that kind of is aimed at kind of getting these sensational headlines. So I think that's part of it. You know, I also am really aware of, of the kind of very, the very heated nature of ML research, right? I mean, these are, there's a lot of money involved. There's all this back and forth between the private sector and universities. Everybody's incentivized to make big claims, right? Mm-hmm. And especially the press is sort of incentivized to not be careful about either the claims that they make or the, and checking the claims that people make. And then you know and, and then governments pick up on it and they, and they sometimes just, they sort of believe it, right? Or companies believe it, customers believe it. You want customers to believe it because you want to sell them the technology mm-hmm. at a certain level. And I think that's a lot of where this is all coming from in the kind of swirling hype world around machine learning. And this desire, right? This desire, there's a real desire to want to peel back the skin and like get to the truth of things about people right? That's not a desire that started with machine learning. Machine learning is just the latest tool that kind of keeps that kind of desire going, right? In the paper that you mentioned, Physiognomic AI, you know, we talk a lot about the 19th century, no computers then, but a similar set of desires to kind of try to like identify people from their exterior traits, right? A similar set of desires to to categorize people, to kind of understand who people are and what they're doing. I think that that longstanding longstanding kind of desire for that certainty, I think that's actually the, the core problem right? that It's it, These technologies are, are the symptom, but this huge, huge unease about about that you might have to like actually, you know, engage with somebody and find out their perspective, as opposed to running some sort of sensor over them and getting information about them. I think that's, that's a much longer history. And that's, and that's where I think actually being a historian in this context is really helpful because, right, the, new, the tech is new, that kind of ideology or that kind of wish is not.
0: mm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. In that paper, did you find examples or in your research broadly in the area, did you find examples of commercial products that are based on the, this research or ideas? There have been lots of applications of, of the
1: sort of simple emotion analysis, for instance, right? And things like hiring, right? So HireView was a famous case, right? They have claimed that they've stopped doing a lot of the kind of facial recognition or facial analysis work on emotion, but they there's still a lot of concerns about, about hiring in general. There are a lot of really alarming examples in the in the kind of sort of law enforcement, national security space, both both in the United States and overseas, right? About around kind of doing these analyses, making judgments and assumptions about suspects. And there's an increasing interest in, in, in using these technologies in education, right? Mm-hmm. The pandemic has really meant right, a lot more screen time and a whole bunch of companies have sort of moved into this space promising analytics to help children learn, right? Which, which involves analyzing their attentiveness, analyzing their, you know, their demeanor, stuff like that. So it is a, a quite a heterogeneous set of technologies. And you know, not, not every technology is seeking to classify or identify the same thing. So in the paper, we we tried to kind of get a, as high level a kind of definition as we could to kind of capture the broad range of where we see the tech going.
0: So I wanted to kind of introduce into the conversation some late breaking news. This is not characteristic for the this podcast, but since we started our recording, Facebook announced that they're going to be shutting down their facial recognition system. Is this since we started recording? Thereabouts. Obviously, you haven't been reading that, but you've been following what the company's been doing. Any, any thoughts on on that?
1: Yeah, that's interesting.
0: I think that's first of
1: all indicative of how toxic the term facial recognition has gotten. Also, apparently, how like how ubiquitous. Somebody was somebody the other day was mentioning that they that people sort of sometimes kind of use facial recognition as synonymous for any kind of computer vision, right? Oh, we use mm-hmm. facial recognition to identify this guitar. That's interesting. But anywho, facial recognition as a term is clearly really, really toxic and clearly something that, that the tech companies don't want to be involved with. Facebook is, of course, rebranding itself, right? It's it's yeah. had a lot of a lot of press this week going to, to meta, talking about about the, the metaverse. What's the metaverse? The metaverse is virtual reality, right? The metaverse mm-hmm. is about it, which includes creating digital avatars of of users, right? Facebook uh, has been researching how to do physiological scans of bodies to produce more more precise, more accurate avatars for some time. Mm-hmm. And Facebook may be shutting down some aspect of its photo facial recognition, right? But Facebook is still very interested in collecting data about the body mm-hmm. and using that data to collect information about its users to, to, to model it. In fact, VR technologies collect enormous amounts of data, not just about the face, right, but about heart rate, movement, right? You name it, right? They're, they're doing a very granular scan, you know, how you're moving, how you're acting. It's interesting that this comes up, actually, because there is a whole connection with these conversations around facial recognition and physiognomy and stereotypes with animation, actually, right? Animation mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, cartoons, in terms of CGI, right? And one of the big challenges with animation is that the easiest way to convey emotion and animation is through a stereotype. You know, it's through some kind of physical, you know, big eyes or, or, or tiny mouth, right? Mm-hmm. And so you get all of these conventions, all these stereotypes from animation that, that begin to inflect how we think about people, you know, how we think about people's emotional expression their other kinds of expression. And now we're getting to the point, right, where social media companies are trying to collect, you know, trying to animate users, right, for their own for their own end. An interesting move by Facebook, but
0: not maybe totally shocking or unexpected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You also raise an interesting point that while they are shutting down facial recognition, in many ways, their stated direction requires them to do what you find most frustrating about facial recognition, which is digitize the body and make representations of that and maybe in some other universe or some digital world
1: right some some digital representation exactly and and you know a bunch of companies have done this over the last couple of years right so what did amazon said they were going to do a moratorium on using their facial recognition systems and systems for police departments okay Mm -hmm. that's that's very narrow you know all these announcements from various companies sounded good they got good headlines right if you dug into it they were you know either they weren't really in that business anyway and, and so there was no skin off their back to say they weren't going to be in it anymore, <laughs> right? Or they or it was a very limited part of, of what they were, what they mm-hmm. were providing. Yeah, I think that's deflection, right? on Facebook's part. And I think again that's actually partially why we we really wanted to go beyond facial recognition, right? In this paper and say there's this whole class of of classifying technologies and classificatory technologies. And cuz you know, you don't cuz we 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 don't, you know, we don't want to play whack-a-mole all the time, right? People in tech often complain that that regulators can't keep up with the technology. But part of that is because of the argument that every technology is new, even if some of these technologies have a lot of common denominators in terms mm-hmm. of their conceptual basis or their technical basis. And so that's that's kind of uh, I think a ban on on phys- physiognomic AI analysis. Yeah, would you know you could apply that to thinking about virtual reality avatars especially if those are are grounded in digital data and if they're being you know machine learning is being used to extrapolate or you know that animation. Mhm.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have a a goal in terms of kind of a regulatory framework or or a thought in terms of what that needs to look like to to be effective?
1: Yeah, again this is where the historian hat comes in kind of handy. I think that right? As I sort of have been saying, this problem, this problem of, of trying to infer things about people at mm-hmm. scale is a pretty old problem. It's a, at least a couple of hundred years old. And it for a long time was sort of felt by two groups of people, broad groups of people. Experts in the lab, right? Scientists of various kinds and the kind of often marginalized populations who Got experimented on, right? Whether that's b- very broadly, right? Whether that's people, people in colonial, you know, in, in colonized societies who are who are getting, you know, 19th-century scientists and administrators going in and doing stuff to them, whether that's poor people in Europe and North America, right? Those marginalized people understood the 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 kind of injustices of these sort of the sorts of classifications very well. But the kind of privileged, you know, and I count myself as part of this group, right, kind of privileged in North America, you know, white white middle-class people, they didn't really see always see the, the kind of negative side of classification and quantification. So now with AI being so ubiquitous and being, being deployed, right, you know, in white collar professions, right, in all sorts of, of different spaces, I think it just means that the injustices and, and power asymmetries of classification of the, of the body are now more apparent to people for whom they weren't always apparent before. And so, right, what, so that means it's an old problem that, that people are suddenly waking up to, not some sort of new problem. And so I think the end game in terms of regulation is to think really carefully about when you do inference about humans at all, right? What, you know, what, how, what kind of inference do you do? Is that inference being done? Solely for research, right? Are certain kind of inferences that are done for research, you know, does does that put that research off limits for commercialization? How do governments, how do states handle the kind of data that they have under their control and the kind of inferences they make based on that on that data about humans? I think that's a conversation that that is happening has been happening sort of in patches, but I think as an overarching theme needs to happen more. Mm-hmm. which is something I'm thinking about. Not all inference is physiognomic, but all physiognomy is inference. Physiognomic AI, that's a class, a category. We, we know there's a problem. That's what we're talking about in the paper. Yeah. There's a higher level category about, about doing any kind of inference about data about humans that I think there's, we're at the beginning of a bigger conversation about.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe going all the way back to the onion to kind of wrap things up, what would you point you know, me or, or anyone else who's not quite bought into that third layer of the onion as being fundamentally wrong. Like, right. I can buy that, you know, MLAI facial recognition is misused all the time. I can buy that people, you know, that the technology is not quite there yet and is is problematic in its current state of uh, applicability, particularly in, in some use cases. I'm not sure that I'm fully bought into you know, digitizing faces, digitizing bodies is fundamentally wrong or fundamentally racist. Like for for that matter, what what, what are the best book or books or articles for us to take a look at?
1: Yeah, so you could start. There's a famous book by Stephen Jay Gould called The Mismeasure of Man. That's a good introduction to thinking about phrenology and physiognomy in the 19th century, and 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 kind of thinking about that this history of why people's bodies get quantified in that way. Mm-hmm. The work of, yeah, so the work of some of the people I've already mentioned, of Wendy Chun, who's uh, at Simon Fraser University out in Vancouver, talking about race and racism as a, as a technique or as a technology. The work of Simone Brown, T. Austin, who talks about the sort of history of classification and racial surveillance of of Black Americans, going back to the slave and the slave people and to, and to kind of anti-escape escape slave laws.
0: My sense from the references, it's been a long time since I've come across the, the Gould book. but my immediate reaction to those is that we're kind of circling back to layer one of the onion which is the use like i get racist use of facial recognition is racist right but like fundamentally any digitization digitization of a face as being racist like
1: right again right if you take the definition of racism as being assigning some metric to an external feature, using it to make a judgment about the person. Right? I mean, that's, in some ways, maybe we've done a kind of like a full circle loop, right? Yeah, that is both a use case, but it's also fundamental to what these systems do. Right? So it's it's conceptual, it's the point, it's almost tautological, right? The point of facial recognition is to assign a set of numbers to a face and make a judgment about that face. Right? that's it. And if that is the textbook definition of racism being making a judgment about your skin, your external self. So yeah, so I think in some ways it does loop around, but I think that's part of the problem is that people don't always get at bottom, that's what racism is, right? Mm -hmm. It's not being irrationally bigoted or something, right? Racism is, is, is a technique, right? It has this like tech, you know, this kind of materiality to it. And so you can, you know, that's yes, why you can be racist without realizing it, right? You can be racist, you know, without, with the best of intentions, which kind of ties into bigger conversations we're having these days
0: mm-hmm.
1: in society. And so I think your point is right, but I think it does come around to that, that fundamental question of what, right, what conceptually is putting numbers to humans about? Mm -hmm. Look, I think there's an interesting question here about, you know, I mean, okay, so you could say that there are, in some medical cases, right, maybe you want to to quantify the spleen or something or a a lung, right? Right. Is that racist? Well, there's certainly a lot of potential for racism or racial disparity to come into those medical data. And there's been lots of studies about Mm -hmm. that. Is that quite the same? Jury's still out. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fair point, that quantifying a, a particular organ and you know, we—that's something to talk about. The face, right? The face is so central to the way we identify each other and the way we, the way we understand each other socially. I don't think you can quantify the face without without stumbling into that problem.
0: Mm. Well, there's no question that it's dangerous. No question that it is, you know, lends itself or is available for misuse. No question that it's easy to do wrong, and that we see a lot of examples where you know data sets and algorithms and all these things contribute to to misuse. I'm glad food that for thought for your for your audience. Food for thought and I'm glad <laughs> folks like you are out there, you know, keeping an eye on it and I'd love to get your take once you get a chance to actually dig into this Facebook news. Interesting timing. No kidding.
1: Well, it's never a dull moment in this business, I have to say. <laughs> Boy. Kind of wish there'd be a down week, but hasn't hasn't happened yet. Awesome. Thanks so much, Luke. Thanks so much.